Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Some of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And so we've entitled this theme, Majoring on the Minors. The minor prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. I thought it might be good to be able to do a little bit of a teaching on these guys so that when we see them in heaven, and we will see them in heaven, uh, we'll know who they are. You know, it'd be really embarrassing to go up to Hosea and not even know who he is. And him say, didn't you read my book? And we say, uh, I read Rick Warren's book. <laughs> Hi, Rick, how you doing? You know, and I read Brian Houston's book. Hi, Brian, how are you? But I, I never read your book. So we don't want that awkwardness in heaven. So I thought it'd be good for us to be able to look at some of these uh, minor prophets um, in the Old Testament and uh, learn a little bit about them and their, their uh, mandate, their calling and how that applies to us today. This is not an um, intensive study on each minor prophet. We're just looking at the major themes of each minor prophet, okay? And so if you want to do more study, hey, please knock yourself out, get the commentaries, get the Bible studies, enroll in a Bible college somewhere and learn, learn, learn. I am not opposed to that, but this is church and we're meeting people at all sorts of needs. And so I want to take something uh, of the minor prophets, touch on the major theme and uh, have a message that applies to us Today And when we're done and said our final amen, hopefully we'll all be blessed uh, as a result of us looking at these minor prophets. Last week we looked at Hosea and we subtitled that Relentless Love. It was a real romantic story. You can kind of see a film being made about that. And so for all the ladies, they just love this endless, undying, unquenchable love. This never give up, never say die romantic love that Hosea had for his wife who left him, who was unfaithful, who gave up on him, but he never gave up on her. And all the ladies said... It was a man who said, come on, All right, there we go. That's awesome. That was a single guy, by the way. So he's doing that by faith, which is just awesome. Uh, so that was last week, and you can get all of our messages online uh, at our website, or you can uh, download them on our iTunes account on podcast, and you can do that in your own time. Today, we are looking at the prophet Joel. Everyone say Joel. Joel. Uh, and I've subtitled this message, It's Not Too Late. It's Not Too Late. Late. There's very little known about this man, Joel. Um, we don't really know when this book was written because he doesn't reference any kings in history. So we're not too sure. This is what the experts say. They, they reckon it's written sometime between 900 BC and 400 BC. That's a big gap. It's somewhere in there. Uh, braver uh, theologians uh, would say somewhere around 800 BC, uh, which makes uh, Jonah one of the first writers of the Minor Prophets. And uh, his name simply means Yahweh is God. And um, the major theme of this book is the day of the Lord. Joel mentions the day of the Lord five times. The day of the Lord is mentioned only 13 times with all the other prophetic writings, but Joel mentions it five times in his one writing. Five times, the day of the Lord. And the book focuses on the judgment and uh, the demise of the nation of Judah and the city 
of Jerusalem. And we want to turn right now to Joel chapter 1, reading from verse 1. I promise you, it won't be a doom and gloom day, okay? It's going to end good. Turn to the verse next to say, it will end good. So no matter what Tony says, it will end good. All right, Joel chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel said, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. And that has been happening ongoingly right up till to today. What the locust swarm have left, the great locust has eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locusts have left over, locusts have eaten. This book of Joel was written off the back of a natural disaster. The nation of Judah had experienced an incredible locust plague and as a result, everything before it had been devoured. And uh, Joel uses this moment in history. He uses this natural disaster as an opportunity to highlight some coming judgment that was to come to Judah. Like all good preachers and all good leaders, he was able to take something from the culture, something from the time, something that was very relevant and something that had just happened and use it as an illustration uh, to bring about a message. Basically, Judah had been uh, living its own way, doing its own thing, hadn't taken their eyes off the Lord, and Judah was in trouble of, and uh, under the judgment of God, and the Babylonian army were going to come, and just like this locust plague, were going to devour all before it, and everyone was going to know about it, and no one was going to escape this onslaught. And um, Joel uses this incredible moment in time to highlight the judgment that was to come. Um, Because Judah was drifting, as I've already said. And uh, in Joel chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Wake up, you drunkard, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. Joel says that this devastation that you have experienced by the locusts has robbed you of life's pleasures. Basically saying, because of the locusts, there is no vine. And where there is no vine, there is no wine. No vine, no wine. And he was taking them and stripping them of their pleasures and their comforts because it's their pleasures and comforts that had caused them to drift away from God. As much as I believe in blessing, as much as I believe in God answering our prayers, I still believe today that one of the biggest hindrances to the gospel going forward is the blessing that comes our way from God Himself. And if not handled correctly, it's the very thing that gets in the way of His plan and His purpose. And that's exactly what we see taking place here. And so this swarm of locusts comes, devours all the vines, devours all that's before it, and now they can't drink. And so it's a massive wake-up call. 
Yeah, Joel chapter 2 verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Remember this song? Anyone who's my age, maybe a little bit older, remember this song? It was a horrible song, but we used to sing it with gusto, not knowing that we were singing about locusts. But anyway, um, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. So this is a wake-up call. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times or ever will be in ages to come. Joel chapter 1 and verse 11 says, The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys His commands. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? The theme is the day of the Lord. And Joel says that this day of the Lord is great. Everyone say great. And he says it's dreadful. Say dreadful. How can something be both great and dreadful? I'll tell you why. It depends where you're situated. It depends where you're situated. If you think just for a moment, you go to the football and whether it's a great or dreadful day depends on what team you're on. Yeah. It depends whether you're on the winning side. If you're on the winning side, it's a great day. But if you're on the losing side, it's a dreadful day. The same day, the same stadium, the same crowd, the same sun that is shining, the same grass under your feet. But for one, it is a great day. For the other, is it a dreadful day? And it all depends on what team you are on. And this is a massive wake up call that Joel is sending to God's people, that the day of the Lord is coming and you better make sure that you are on the right team. Because if you're not on the right team, this great day is gonna be a dreadful day. And you do not wanna be on the wrong side when when the day of the Lord happens. This is a wake up call. It's a great day if you're on the right side and it's a dreadful day if you're on the wrong side. For you and I, we won't ever face the Babylonian army as the nation of Judah did. But every one of us will face the day of the Lord. Every one of us will stand before the Lord. The Bible talks about a rapture. Whether we go to God or whether God comes to us, I don't know because I don't know when this day of the Lord is and nor does anybody on the planet today. But what we do know is it's coming. And for it to be a great day, we better make sure that we are on the right side and that we're in the right frame of mind. That's what this book is all about. It's a wake-up call to make sure that we don't drift away from the plans and the purposes of God so that when this day happens, we could be on the winning side. Basically, Judah, as I've already said, had taken their eyes off the Lord. They were no longer seeing clearly. And Joel tells them what to look out for and where to look. Because where you look is where you live. Where you look is where you live. And so I want to look at four things this morning that hopefully we can learn from Joel's warnings and help us today. And it has four emphasis on where we need to look. And the first thing Joel says is look around. He says, look around. In other words, have a look around and you have a realisation of your humanity. Joel says, see what's happened. See what the locusts have done. You're not in control. You're not God. You might think you're God. You might think you're in control. But it's these natural disasters that cause us to be arrested. 
This natural disaster was to be used as a uh, wake-up call and a realisation of our humanity. It's interesting to me that when we experience a natural disaster, and we may not have a natural disaster like a locust plague, that may not affect us directly. However, I do remember as a young man driving over to the Air Peninsula, uh, where we went many summers uh, for many of our holidays. My dad's motto was, if there's more than five people, there's too many people. And if there's a public toilet, it's not a camping site. (laughs) And so we just would drive and drive and drive, across dry, dusty, corrugated uh, roads um, with no air conditioning in a little Morris 1100 with mum and dad in the front, me and Pete on the back seat and my brother Baz, the younger one, up on the back there, just lying there. And, and the car would just be stacked with just luggage and we would just drive until there were no people and we'd say, this will do And of the many times we did that, I do remember on several occasions, but on this particular occasion, going through what was a locust swarm. Never seen it before, didn't know what it was. This looked like a dust storm until it hit us. And I remember saying to Dad, Dad, what was that? Just excited, like, what was that? And Dad said, that's a locust swarm, son. (laughs) And this is what he said, of biblical proportions. (laughs) I'm like, what does, I don't even know what that means. But at least I had a campsite with no toilet to look forward to. Anyway, such is our upbringing, but such is life. But these natural disasters are meant to be a wake-up call to our humanity. Unfortunately, we often don't learn the lesson and we end up blaming God. Even the insurance companies blame God for natural disasters. Have you noticed that? When you try and claim your money for an insurance claim, and they say, sorry, not our fault, God's fault, act of God, cha-ching. We blame God. If God's a God of love, why do bad things happen? I I tell you what, these natural disasters are meant to be a wake-up call to our humanity to realise actually that, that, that there's so much in life that's out of our control. And while it may not be a locust plague, we can identify with bushfires. It wasn't that long only the beginning of this year, where members of our congregation were radically affected by the bushfires. We've had tsunamis and hurricanes and, and all sorts of things over the globe today, just, just destroying homes and lives and families. And all these things really point to the fact that we're not as in control as we think we are. We can have life insurance. We can have a nice car. We can have all the safety features in that car. But at the end of the day, A hundred years from now, none of us will be here in this room. Everything around us is fleeting. And these natural disasters are moments to get our attention and remind us that we are not as secure in our own strength as we possibly think we are. God said to Job in Job 38 verse 4, he says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me. It's a humbling thought, isn't it? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? It goes on to say, who told the sea this far and no further? I start thinking about all the things that God has created. Who said to the giraffe, you shall have a long neck? Did anyone here say giraffes will have a long neck? 
Did anyone say hippopotamuses will be big, fat, and round? No. But God did. From the very beginning of time. And these are moments in our lives to realize our own humanity and the fickleness of our humanity and to get us thinking about bigger things other than just long service leave, other than what we're going to do when we retire. These are moments God wants us to get a hold of and, and, and go a little bit deeper and think a little bit bigger about things. See, the great thing about God is this. I don't have all the answers. As a pastor, I don't have all the answers. When's Jesus coming back? I don't know. I just know he is coming back. Call yourself a pastor. I just don't know. There's much I don't know. There's much I don't know as a pastor, but there's also much I don't know as a father. As a natural dad, I don't know. I know I've shared this story before, but when, when Mitch was born, and he's our one and only son, he's our middle child, and, and uh, when he was in uh, the womb, there was a few complications, and they picked up that there was a few limbs missing off his left hand, uh, and a digit, sorry, off his left hand, and uh, they asked us to abort. We said no, they got mad. Um, he was born, rest is history. But in that... I remember thinking to myself, one day, I don't know when, but one day, he will ask me about his hand. And I remember when I first thought about that, I thought, Lord, I don't know what I will say. More to the point, I don't have an answer. And Lord, if you could give me an answer right now, that'd be really helpful. And the heavens were as brass. Got nothing. And God was gracious because... It got to the age of about four before Mitch eventually asked me that question. And it was when he was in kindy. And, and you know, that's when kids are around. And that's when kids ask questions. And, and someone asked him a question about his hand. And so, because he didn't know the answer to that question, he asked me. And I'll never forget that day he asked me, he said, Dad, why don't I have fingers on my left hand? And the first thing out of my mouth was this, I don't know. Parenting 101, if you don't know, you don't know. Don't say you know when you don't know. There's a little bit of side advice. Parents, if you don't know, say, I don't know. Don't tell your children that the Great Wall of China was built to keep the rabbits out. <laughs> you might look like a hero for a day, maybe even a year, but eventually they'll work out that you're an idiot. <laughs> and you don't want that. It's better they work out you're an idiot sooner rather than later. And so I looked at him and said, I don't know. But then I just felt this peace of God come upon me. And no sooner had I said, I don't know, than I felt God give me something to say. And I said, but I also don't know why you're incredibly handsome, Mitch. I don't know why you've got amazing blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. I don't know why you're so incredibly good looking. I don't know. I said, because there are a lot of ugly kids out there, Mitch but you're not one of them. I don't know why. And I'll never forget his face. It just settled. It settled. It settled him. And to this very day, he knows one thing, if nothing else. He's incredibly good looking. <laughs> he's got amazing blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. And that's all he needed to know at that point in time. And to this day, it's still true. He's amazing. I don't know. I don't know why a husband and wife team who have served God and leading a church, I don't know why that would happen. But I also know if I don't know why, I don't need to know why. 
If God doesn't answer all your questions, say thank you. I, I pray for every one of you that you can live long enough and hang around long enough to be able to thank God when He said no to your prayers. That's a good day. When you've been around long enough to look back and say, oh, I'm so glad God didn't say yes to that. Remember that girl that you desperately wanted and said, Lord, change your mind, change your mind, change your mind, and, and nothing happened. And then you meet her years later and, and she's like this ugly girl and you've got the good looking one. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Not that that would ever happen, but I'm just saying. <laughs> have, you ever, have you hung around long enough to be able to look back and say, oh, thank you, Lord. I remember before we moved into this building, we were dead set on buying the shopping centre next to the old building. We were dead set, so sure that we walked around that building every Wednesday night, every place on which your foot shall tread, the Lord has given it to you. Amen, amen. Blow the trumpet in Zion, Zion. Sound the alarm in the holy mountain. We would walk around that thing, claim and name and name and claim and shame and blame. And tame, play the game, all that stuff. We did it all. And all we managed to do is upset everyone in our neighbourhood. <laughs> what's going on? But there was enough in the Bible about opposition, so it must be God, right? So let's pray again. Let's go again. Every place on which your foot shall tread. And we do it. Until the council put an end to it. We had to go to the council chambers and, and get laughed out of the council chambers and, and nothing came of it. And I'm the guy who has to get up on this next Sunday morning and preach. What do you say? What do you say when you've done all that? We may have even had a flag or two, I don't know. <laughs> but there definitely weren't ribbons. I know there weren't ribbons. There might have been a flag or two. There weren't ribbons. As if that's any better. I don't know. And I had to get up on a Sunday morning and preach. What do you do? I didn't know. And that's the exact question I asked. Like, what do I say? Because right now, every place on which your foot shall tread doesn't seem like the scripture I need to be sharing. And I remember God just quietly and quickly putting in my heart, when one door shuts, another one opens. And so I went to the congregation. One door has shut. And another one will open. Where is that door? I don't know. It's out there somewhere. And it wasn't that long after that moment that we got a whiff of this place, starting investigating, and here we are. The rest is history. If you know everything about your God, you don't know the God I serve. I trust and pray that you can get to know Him and hang around long enough to be able to look back and think, thank you, Lord, for not answering that prayer. Thank you for not saying yes to that. Thank you for not saying yes for that. Because if we had been and we had received that property, it would have been a disaster. It would have been far too small. We would have been stuck with a group of people who, who already we knew didn't like us. In a community that wanted us out, there was like thousands of people who signed a petition, get rid of the church. In actual fact, they got airplay on Channel 7 News. And this is how it started. Local community tells local church to go to hell. <laughs> like, wow. 
Go look around. I mean, look at all that's happening. Look, open the newspaper. It's devastation after devastation. And if we just stop there, it's a pretty sad day. Which brings me to my second point. Because not only do we need to look around and realize our humanity, but we also need to look up and have a fresh revelation of God. We need to look around, and what we see when we look around should cause us then to look up and find hope in God. Joel uses this natural disaster to bring a fresh revelation of who God is. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. See, God is not only a God who's in control, but he's a God who knows you. And not only is he a God who's in control and he knows you, but he's a God who loves you. It's one thing for someone to love you from a distance. This is what pop stars have all the time. They, they love from a distance. But the moment their humanity begins to appear, people start getting put off. We, we like them better up there on stage than getting to know them. But God's love is not like that. God loves us. He loves the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows it all, and yet He still loves us. To be loved when you're not known is, is quaint. But to be loved when you're known with all your faults and shortcomings, that's love. That's what the Bible calls agape love. It's this God love. And Joel is saying in the midst of this devastation, in the midst of all the trial and tribulation, in the midst of your darkest day, in the midst of receiving all those pastoral calls, in the midst of seeing loved ones who are no longer around, in the midst of your marriage falling apart, in the midst of all of this, look up. Keep your eyes on Him. God wants us to return to Him. Joel's using this moment to stop the drift. Where times are tough, don't run from God, run to Him. These natural disasters or this realisation of our humanity leads to a revelation of God. But it's this revelation of God that leads to an understanding of our humanity. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. In Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 6, it says, I saw the Lord. And we say, wow, that's amazing. But his response is intriguing. He says, but woe to me from a man with unclean lips. And so there's this revelation of God and we realize our humanity. But there's this looking out to the devastation and we realize our humanity. And all of it keeps us looking up to this incredible God. Peter, likewise, he had this incredible catch of fish one day. It's found in Luke chapter 5. And after this incredible catch of fish, he runs to Jesus, falls at his feet and says, get away from me. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of such a great catch. Why are you blessing me? But what you've got to understand at that moment, that's exactly where God wants you to be, at his feet. It's not about going away from me because of sin. It's, it's coming to me because of your sin. It's because of the devastation. It's because of our brokenness that God wants us close to Him. So we need to look around. We need to look up. 
But then we need to look within. We need to look within. There needs to be a repentance of our sin. You see, we see the intent of God's judgment was a desire for our repentance. The intent of judgment, the intent of his discipline was to bring us to a place of repentance. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. What God is after from us is that we would tear our hearts Joel says, rend our hearts. It means to tear. It means to be broken hearted. He says, don't worry about rending your garments. Don't do all the show. You can lift your hands in worship. You can kneel on the floor. You can even lay prostrate on the floor. But all that can just be an outward expression. And that's fine if there's an inward change. See, the word repentance means to have a change of mind. We need to think about things differently. It means to turn 180 degrees from how we were thinking, how we were acting, how we were feeling in our heart, that we might be able to come close to Him. It's more than just a feeling of remorse. Some of us feel sorry because we were caught. And there's shame and embarrassment attached to us being caught out. But that's not repentance. Repentance is being grieved on the inside about our actions. Whether we got caught or not, there's just an inner conviction. And if there's not that inner conviction, there won't be that outward change that is meaningful to God. God doesn't want us just to tear our clothes. He doesn't want us just to raise our hands. He wants an inner conviction and a genuine repentance. It's all about God's will over my will and His way over my way. His will over my will, my way, his way over my way. If there's no repentance, there can be no lasting change. Repentance is more than running from sin, it's returning to God. And Joel's heart is that his people, in spite of impending judgment, that they would return to God. And we do that through repentance, which brings me to my fourth and final point. If uh, Kathy can come up on the keys, that would be great. We've got to look to the future. I said we'd finish well. We need to look around at the devastation, and that's everywhere. You open the newspaper, you turn on the news, and you'll see devastation after devastation. Don't be discouraged. Look up. As we look up, we need to keep a clean heart. That's why we look within. But then we need to look to the future. In Joel chapter 2, verse 25, it says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I send among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders with you. Never again will my people be shamed. You know, the theme of all the minor prophets can be summed up in two words. Repentance, and restoration. Repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. See, God's ultimate desire for you is to be restored back to Him. He, he, he wants a restoration to take place. And I believe this restoration is twofold. 
One, it's of the physical things that the locusts had eaten. Joel says there's a promise coming that what you've lost physically and practically, there's going to be a returning back to you. I was talking to someone after the chapel service this morning who was saying that after 30 years of something happening, all that they lost has now been returned back to them. If you hang around long enough, it's amazing what God wants to return back to us. And I believe that's in natural, physical things. God wants to return and restore. And I trust that's comforting for some of you out there. But the other side of the restoration that God is talking about is a restoration of the relationship that's been lost with Him and His people. God wants that relationship. He wants you and I to come to Him and to turn to Him on a daily basis. I was thinking about this just this week. When Jesus broke that bread, that miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that we read about in the New Testament. And He broke the bread and He gave that bread to the disciples and the disciples in turn gave it to the people. But that's a lot of people. Did did Jesus give the 12 disciples all the food at once just to give out to the 5,000 men, not including women and children? That's food for 20,000 people. No. He got them sitting in small groups. And he filled up their basket and he said, now go and give it out and then come back to me. And so what the disciples did, they grabbed something from Jesus, the food from Jesus, and they'd give it to the people. Then they were empty. And at that moment when you've got nothing more to give, you either give up, give in, or you go back to Jesus. This is a word. And they get more food, more fish, more bread. And they didn't just sit there and eat it themselves. These are the two extremes. Just sit there, bless me, and get fatter and fatter, lazier and lazier. Or serve Jesus until we run out, then just get tired and weary. The principle is we keep going back to Jesus. He said, Lord, I've got nothing left. They devoured me. I mean, these people, they're monsters. They took everything. I know. Here, have some more. Go do it again. Again! Yeah, do it again. Okay. Man, I've got nothing. Jesus, they took all the food. I know. You said you wanted to be used. I'm using you. The power's in the return. Longevity's in the return. The not giving up, the not giving in is in the return. The stay, it's in the return. The stay. You know that one little word we try and get our puppies to learn, which is a lot harder than you think? Stay. Stay. And every puppy that's full of life and energy just wants to do everything but stay. I want to travel the world. I want to see this. I want to see that. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to marry him. I want to marry her. I want to go here. I want to go there. Just stay. The stay, the longevity, the power is found in the return. And you know what? After all the people have been fed, they came back to Jesus, hungry, tired. And guess what? There were 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple, for them to sit and rest. 
Amazing things. We need the band to come up. We're going to break bread in just a little while. In Joel chapter 2, and this is probably the most famous verse from Joel, because it's found in Acts chapter 2 and was quoted by Peter. It's found in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It says, and afterward, After what? After your devastation. After your pain. After your loss. Afterward. After your tough day. After your confused state of mind. After your temper tantrum. Afterward, Joel says. See, whenever you find the word after or afterward, you've got to find out what was before for it to have its meaning. Because there's a lot of good coming just now. But in order to get the good that's coming, you better do what was before the after. And he says after. After what? After you repent. After you repent, he says, I'll pour out my spirit. Wow. And I'll do that on all people. If you're rich here today, that includes you. If you're poor here today, that includes you. Male, female, whatever nationality or race, it includes you. I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters, oh, they're going to prophesy again. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone, everyone, everyone say everyone. That's everyone. Did a quick study about what everyone means and it simply means everyone. Turn to the person next to you and say, everyone means you. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, it's an assurance, will be saved. It's not a guess, it's not an assumption, it's an absolute. Will be saved. Joel, even amongst all the doom and gloom, and even amidst the apocalyptic nature and theme of this book. There is hope. Because there always is hope where Jesus is. And so no matter what, no matter what you've been going through and what you've been experiencing, there's hope today. But the great question of Joel, as I conclude, is this. Do we really need God to strip us of everything before we repent and return to Him? Because God in His love and in His grace and in His mercy will strip us of everything in order to keep that relationship. He will. He's no respecter of persons. 
See, his concern is not your comfort. His concern is not my comfort. His concern is our relationship. And he will strip whatever we need to be stripped of in order to have that vital relationship. And so he stripped Judah that they might return to him. But do we really have to be stripped of everything? That's the question. I know people have been stripped of everything and come back to God and it's a wonderful day. But I also know people who have just stayed in relationship with God and lost very little. And of the two people groups, I know which one I would rather be in. If you've lost lots, the good news is there's hope. If you haven't lost lots and you're in love with Jesus, here's the good news, you don't have to lose it. If you stay close. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 